Well, first day of December, it is dumping snow outside in Missoula, but that just means that the World Cup is heating up. Some great games this morning. Belgium and Canada going out with Morocco. And Croatia moving on. This is Thursday morning, December 1st. By the way, this is Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the new soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton, your host of Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Soccer and Snow and Smoke is brought to you by Zootown Sports Cards, Canby Tap House, and Blackfoot Communications. Big thanks to all of our sponsors on Soccer and Snow and Smoke. We couldn't do it without them. Zootown Sports Cards is your hub for all things sports card and memorabilia collecting in the Garden City. Go and find them at 2100 Stevens Avenue. I know they've got plenty of soccer cards just sitting there waiting for a good home. And to help you get started in the soccer card collecting game, if you go in to Zootown Sports Cards and mention to Hillary or Jason that you heard about Zootown on Soccer and Snow and Smoke, they'll hook you up with a little friends and family discount. Soccer and Snow and Smoke is also brought to you by Camby Tap House and Coffee, two great locations in the Garden City, one on South Higgins as well as one in the Sawmill District. One of my favorite places to patronize in the Garden City. I love Camby's great selection of beers on tap, and their food menu is not half bad either. Go and get the Camby fries. That'd be my recommendation. And check out the South Higgins location as well. To watch some of the later games at the World Cup, they'll have them on the TV for you. And finally, Soccer and Snow and Smoke is brought to you by Blackfoot Communications. Connect to more with Blackfoot Communications, the official digital sponsor of Grizzly Athletics and a huge supporter of everything that we do here at ESPN Missoula, as well as at Skyline Sports. Whatever your phone and internet needs, go and visit Blackfoot Communications. And also, if you're a small business, check out their Connect to More program. That's Blackfoot Communications. Connect to more. Make sure you check out our giveaway on Soccer and Snow and Smoke here for the World Cup. We've got some packs of cards from Zootown Sports Cards as well as a $25 gift card to Canby Tap House. Available for one lucky winner, all you have to do is text me, 406-888-1029, who you think is going to win the World Cup. It's getting easier now. Half the teams are out. We're down to the knockout rounds. Text me also who you think is going to win the golden boot for top scorer at this year's World Cup. You don't have to be right. This isn't a contest or anything. I just want to see your thoughts. So text me both of those things, who you think is your pick to win the World Cup and who's your pick for the golden boot, to 406-888-1029 to be entered for your chance to win some packs of cards from Zootown Sports Cards as well as a gift card to Camby Tap House and Coffee. Now back to soccer and snow and smoke. We've done plenty of coverage of the games. We will continue to bring you analysis and opinion all month long from the World Cup. But today we're switching it up a little bit, joined by a frequent contributor and one of my favorite contributors here at ESPN Missoula. It's Justin Angle, live from the University of Montana Business School, here to talk a little bit about the money angle of this tournament. Justin, man, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, happy to be here, Andrew. And, uh, you know, I think recording on this snowy day is uh, is quite appropriate for the title of your show. Uh, hopefully we don't have any smoke in our future, though. We'll, we'll try to avoid that today. Yeah, that's exactly right. Justin, just to start off, man, have you been watching much of the World Cup this year? I mean, what's your experience been with it this year? 
I have been watching a little bit, you know, um, not, uh, I I haven't followed the U.S. team closely. I don't follow international soccer all that closely, but the World Cup is just such a special event that, um, you know, you can't stay away from it. And, uh, you know, I'm able to stream on occasion and you catch some of the games. I watched the United States against Iran the other day, and that was super exciting. And, and catching some of the the other matches as well has been, has been really fun. For those of you who don't know Justin, he is a business professor at the University of Montana, a guy who's got his uh, fingers in a lot of different pies. He's got some award-winning podcast uh, and a frequent guest on Nuana is now here on ESPN Missoula for the business angle every other Tuesday on Nuana is now he's been kind enough to join me previously on soccer and snow and smoke for just some general talks about the the economics of the game here I want to focus in on this World Cup Justin and it's exactly like you mentioned right it's one of those events where Even if you're not a huge soccer fan, you're going to be exposed to it and you're probably going to end up watching it. And part of that, that's what makes it so valuable. Absolutely. It it, it just, it's one of those things that happens so rarely, you know, every four years and it brings the world together. It's a mishmash of cultures and people and it's, it's a way that, that cities and countries can show off their best side uh and we'll get to that with qatar is certainly an interesting ripple in that but um you know much like the olympics it's just a way for the world to um to to gather and compete and you know i I think one of the notions is that you want you, you you like these sorts of events to transcend politics but at the same time they are a huge opportunity for politics to be expressed so there's all sorts of um kind of cultural and political threads to an event like the World Cup. So it's, it's really one of those things that regardless if you know much about the sport or not, you, you're going you're to start to pay attention. You're going to be at least aware that it exists. And, you know, for, for the folks that want to see soccer uh, more prominent in the United States, it's always an on-ramp for folks. And, and, and you know, obviously the, the, the sustainability of that on-ramp kind of depends on the performance of of the U.S. team, and so far, they've put out quite an exciting performance on the field. You like to see them scoring more goals, but advancing to the round of 16 is, is, is so far so good. We'll see how it goes against the Netherlands. Yeah, from a sporting perspective, an event like this is is it's just so easy to understand, and it's so easy to become invested in. I mean, it's such a simple premise, right? Here, are the best athletes in the world. This happens once every four years, so if you're, I mean, even if you have a great long career, you're going to three of these, you have maybe three, maybe four chances at this, and that just imbues every game and every moment, sort of the same as the Olympics that you mentioned, with just this huge import, and even if you don't care about sports at all, right, it's really easy to become invested in that. It's such a simple and easy and universally human narrative to pick up on right here's this person or this team who is getting one of a very few chances they will have in their lifetime to do something historical and memorable and incredible at the very highest level of their profession it's just so easy to get attached to 
Justin, let's touch on the U.S. team here really quickly. How much of the economic success of this event in the United States is going to be tied to the success of that team? And then, you know, how is it going to be possible to carry that potential success forward into, you know, the four years between this World Cup and the next one? Yeah, I think it, it depends on how you want to define success. If you think of success in terms of the competitiveness of the United States on the men's side um, relative to the world community, yeah, it certainly uh, depends on, you know, if the United States can, you know, advancing to the round of 16 is a big deal, right? But but if if we can come away from this experience with a couple more wins, right? Can we, can we knock off a team we're not supposed to in an elimination round? Can there be some really compelling story that kind of draws people in? Um, that'll get people excited about the sport. For those people kind of on the margin who, you know, maybe tune in once every four years, if the United States just kind of peters out again, um, particularly this young team, there's a lot of, um, emerging stars, but none of which are like really household names yet. Um, you know, I think if, if, if we don't go much further, then, you know, I, I just feel like people on the margin will tune out, but people on the margin will tune in and maybe pay more attention if we come up with a compelling result against the Netherlands. So a lot, I think, for the future of the sport, um, and the mind share it holds here in the United States kind of depends, depends on this game. Um, on the flip side, from, from a business standpoint, you know, thinking of the marketability of these players, that kind of depends on, you know, what kind of individual stories can come out of this uh, experience. I mean, the U S captain kind of answered some questions, uh, pointed questions from the media about discrimination in the United States in the last, you know, leading uh, in the lead up to the the game against Iran, I think he handled himself with poise and grace. And um, you know, he's got a lot of potential as, as a marketable asset. Um, you know, that's that's sort of framed callously, but that's the way businesses look at this. Like, can we use these sorts of people to tell the stories we want to tell? Um, so, you know, a part of that will depend on you know, are there individual stories? Are there personalities that we can buy into? And, you know, the, the United States team is young and a lot of these folks are not people we're really familiar with. And so I think we've yet to see if those stories emerge and, you know, the next game or the next couple of games or the next period of years is an opportunity for some of these younger guys to, uh, to seize those opportunities. It's a hugely important game for all the reasons that Justin mentioned. Quick reminder here, United States against the Netherlands in the round of 16, Saturday at 7 a.m. Mountain Time, so not quite getting the cushy noon time slots that we've been having, but get up and watch that game. It's, I mean, it's something that sets the tone for the next four years of this team. Justin, who do you think was the last soccer player who was a household name in the United States, I mean, what level of fame are we talking about here? You know, I think when the cup was in the United States, what was it, 1990? 94. Um, 94, you know, those guys like Alexei Lalas, who we still see, you know, in the booth for Fox, um, you know, and Todd Mioli, the, the, Miola, I think it was, the goalkeeper, 
uh, you know, those guys, and maybe it's just because that's when I was, you know, it, 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 kind of in high school and college and playing soccer and that those were the names that captivated me. Um, you know, some of these younger guys are, are less recognizable. Um, you know, I think of, you know, there's a lot of hype around this, this kid Rania, right? Like it's, sorry if I'm not very good with these names, Andrew, but isn't it, is it Claudia Rania? Or who's it's, their younger one? It's Claudio Reyna's kid, Giovanni Reyna. That's uh, right. Yeah, okay. Claudio Reyna was a, a great U.S. midfielder sort of at the, the in the 90s and at the turn of the century. Yeah, so that's the name I recognize. And then there's all this hype on his son, and, but the son's not getting in the games as much. So it's like, you know, here's a sort of star caliber name that people recognize. They're hungry to see. But, you know, if he's not ready to perform on the field, you can't, can't really fault the team for – for not putting him in, he might actually be more marketable than, than his, um, might, might be more worthy of, of attention than worthy of playing time. And that's just goes to the sort of prominence of, of his father and his father's career. Yeah. There are a lot of interesting marketing opportunities. I think in my opinion with this U S team, like you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's full of young, young kids. I mean, Tyler Adams, the captain who you were talking about, he's, he's 23 years old. He was born in 1999, which, how crazy is that, right? But yeah. uh, <laughs> these are players who you could potentially be seeing at World Cups for the next three cycles. You know, they're, they're, if you can make them into household names now, there's potentially a lot of marketing equity that you can have with these players. They're young. They're really good. There's a lot of charisma on this team. I mean, between Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney in midfield, who has been dyeing his, his hair red, white, and blue for the tournament. Yeah. There's just a lot of good, young, fun players. And I guess the question is, how do you go from what they are on the field to making these players into the household names like you're talking about? I mean, there's there's a big step there. Yeah, there has to be like a, a, a dramatic moment of success you know i think of like the um the, the women's team and what was it 99 where you know was it brandy chastain is that her name yeah scored the winning goal and you know had that iconic moment uh taken off her jersey and you had the nike swoosh on her on her top there and but so she was immediately associated with this this just profound moment of success and that sort of catapulted her into a position where, you know, she could be a spokesperson for various brands could be an analyst in the booths. So I think there's what I'm getting to is there's two paths to this. Like one of the players could have an iconic moment of success like that when the stakes are really high and that could transcend kind of the, the, the popular culture. The other way is, as you mentioned before, like these guys are young and if they can string together um, a series of strong performances over a number of years, over multiple World Cups, then they can kind of become uh, an anchor of familiarity. Like we don't have much familiarity with United States soccer on, on a broad level. Like these, the names are always changing. The uniforms are always changing. It's unclear if we're going to be in the World Cup or not. There's just there's not a dependability of the, of the athletes and the storytelling in a way there, there is in other sports. Like there's no real Tom Brady of us soccer. Right. And, and so, you know, we kind of need that sustained success. So it can happen with, 
you know, an immediate moment of being catapulted where you sort of break out of soccer culture and become a part of popular, popular culture, or, you know, you're able to just do it for so long at a high level that you kind of, um, it becomes, the per- oh, yeah, I recognize that guy. He was in the World Cup last time. And, oh, yeah, I wonder if this guy's still going to make the team. And, you know, if, if some players like that can sustain success, I think we're, we're, they're going to be able to break through as well. Yeah, it's such a great point, and that's why missing the World Cup in 2018 was such a setback for U.S. soccer because you lose the chance to sort of strengthen those pathways in, in people's brains, right? You you lose the chance absolutely of, of strengthening that chain of impressions aside from just how devastating it was on the field. Such a huge setback for U.S. soccer. Justin, real quick, one last thing about the U.S. and the sport in the United States here. The U.S. is never going to miss the World Cup again, for one thing, because they're expanding it to 48 teams. The qualification spots are going to be expanded. I mean, even if the U.S. has a a tragic run through qualifying again, I think they're going to be pretty safely into the World Cup. But they're going to be in the next World Cup in 2026 because they're hosting it. What would you do as a a marketer, as as a brand, to try to pump enthusiasm for an event like that early and take advantage of an event like that being in the United States? Well, I'd want to be really mindful of the calendar, right? Like, like, you know, this is obviously a, an oddly timed world cup because of the climate in Qatar. Um, but I think in the United States, like a way to kind of capitalize on sort of attention share is to, to occupy that kind of dead space where professional baseball MLB is like the only thing happening. Like you don't really want to go up against the beginning of the NFL season. So the earlier in the summer you can get the better, like have this game start like right after the NBA finals in the lead up. I think there needs to be like a grassroots kind of effort. What we're seeing is, you know, I have a lot of friends, whose kids play soccer, you know, in various areas around the country, whose parents did not play soccer. And so the, the way the, their kids are able to sort of draw in their parents and parents are learning about the game and they're learning about the game by watching their kids, but also watching the World Cup with their kids, watching MLS, watching Premier League, watching UEFA Cup, whatever it is. So continuing to promote that, getting those sorts of games on television, being mindful of the fact that, you know, the, the United States is historically has not been some of the best soccer in the world, but telling the stories that these, these kids on, on, on the U.S. team now are competing in the best leagues in the world on teams with the best players in the world. And we might not be the best yet, but, but those stories of, of, um, you know, people going across to Europe, going to South America, wherever to play in some of the best leagues in the world, I think will will draw people in. Um, the game itself is one that, you know, I think there's an attention span factor as well. We need to acclimate folks to, to understanding what the game is about. You know, I, I was sat down with my daughter the other night and we were watching, or the other day and we were watching the Iran game and, she kind of said like, wow, there's nothing happening. And I said, there's something happening all the time. Like in football, there's something intense happening every couple of minutes, right? It's discreet, but in soccer that it's just flowing the entire time. And it's a different type of engagement. The other piece is that these games, 
it's running time without advertisements, right? There's no media timeout. So I think you can build a viewer experience that is, is more engaging um, if you don't have to have ads shoved in there every, every few minutes. Um, and you don't have to have a stoppage of play to get, to get ads across. So I think there are ways that we can package the experience in such a way that it draws people in. Uh, hopefully it can be done in, in a way that you know, brings the curious people in. They want to learn more about it. They want to understand how the game works. And hopefully the product on the field will be an opportunity to do that. Love it. It's Justin Angle, business professor at the University of Montana, joining Soccer and Snow and Smoke to give his thoughts on all of the money circulating around this World Cup, the marketing angle, the branding angle, and of course, Justin, the big sort of asterisk slapped on this World Cup, the elephant in the room, right, is that we are talking about this on the first day of December as six inches of snow is falling outside in Missoula because this World Cup is happening in the winter, because this World Cup is in Qatar for uh, reasons that have everything to do with money, right? And that has Mm -hmm. been such a huge topic of discussion around this World Cup. I just want to start with your initial thoughts on that angle, on on an event like this happening in a place like Qatar and all of the modifications that have had to happen to accommodate that happening. Yeah, so a, a lot there, Andrew. You know, I think on its face, we should start with kind of disabusing ourselves of this notion that, you know, sport is pure, right? We, we have it, you know, sport and international sport, particularly kind of around the Olympic ethos has created this, this myth of purity, right? It's like this time where, you know, societies lay down their arms and compete over sport instead of using weapons, right? And, 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 and we transcend politics and all that. And that's a nice, tidy story. But it, it, to the extent it's ever been true, it's certainly not true now. I mean, we see where the Olympics have been the last several cycles, the Olympics in Russia, right at the same time the whole Russian Federation was being banned from, from many of the, the competitions. We've seen the, the summer Olymp- or the winter Olympics in Beijing, kind of on manufactured snow. And so there's just kind of this like um, myth that we're still trying to capitalize on of purity. So set that aside, uh, you know, we had to kind of contort the World Cup schedule. We had to contort the structure. Qatar had to contort itself in a way. Like Doha did not have any infrastructure um, to support a World Cup when the, the cup was allocated there or awarded there in 2010. In the intervening 12 years, the, the they essentially had to build an entirely new city. Um, and that not only takes a ton of money, but the amount of stress it puts on, on resources, the amount of, you know, horrible labor practices we're learning about, um, death and so forth. I mean, we moved the tournament to the winter so the player uh, players wouldn't have to compete in the, in, in the oppressive heat yet, you know, essentially quasi slave labor worked round the clock uh, around the calendar to, to make these nine stadiums from scratch. 
um, you know, so that these players could play <laughs> for 90 minutes in a, in a, in a cooler environment. Anyway, yeah, there's lots of compromise that was made. And, you know, I think when it comes down to it, a good analogy um, to kind of understand how and why that happens is the NFL, right? And I think this is something Coulter and I talk about repeatedly on his show. It's like, what's the breaking point for the NFL? They continue to just be this, this behemoth of a, of an attention getter. The ratings are super strong. The, the revenue is super strong. And it's because people love the sport and, you know, they love watching the experience. You know, they love going to the games, watching them on Sundays. They built a life around it, a ritual around it. And they can kind of ignore some of the downside, right? Some of the negative costs. And, you know, the same exists with soccer. I think we, we might have a hard time kind of grasping that in the United States, in the United States, because soccer doesn't quite hold the cultural cachet that the NFL does. But internationally, I think it's very similar to the NFL. It just continues to, um, to attract the masses and the masses are willing to, you know, forgive a lot of sin in order to see the product they want to see. Yeah. It's such a great test of the strength of individual morality measured against the strength of the product. Right. And the world cup is one of the greatest sporting products, as I sort of mentioned already in the world. I mean, it's right up there with the Olympics. And as you mentioned, the NFL, People are willing to overlook a lot of bad things to consume that product, and it allows, man, it allows, and and this is why Qatar is doing it, right? It allows the product to become synonymous with the people who are putting it on, and that's in large part why Qatar is hosting this World Cup. It's just such a great test case. For, for how much people are willing to put up and for, for how strong the product is. Yeah, and I think, too, like in, in this case, a lot of that storytelling about the, the horrible labor practices and corruption, a lot of that isn't front and center, right? Like the coverage of the World Cup, like Fox is definitely not going to present that to, to their viewers, right? Or Fox Sports, that is. You know, and I think you see great journalism about the labor practices and other forms of corruption, but it's, it's adjacent to the coverage, right? There's, there's sort of, you'd have to, if you're turning in to watch the world cup, you're, you're not going to see that you're going to see this, you know, super glitzy country that looks like it's just swimming in resources, which it is in many ways, but you know, they're, they're, there's a, a, a sort of dark underside to that that uh, the average fan probably gets no exposure to. Um, and Qatar kind of knows that, right? And they're capitalizing on that. You have to really pay attention to understand, um, you know, all, all the sort of bad things that, that were pulled together to, to make the World Cup look so beautiful. Well, it's impossible and it's exhausting, right, to continually center the yep. atrocities in, in the coverage, right? I, like you said, there's been great reporting on migrant workers who come to Qatar to build these stadiums and their visas are held by their employers and they're dying in huge numbers. I mean, the latest estimate was that 
over 400 migrant workers, mostly from South Asia, had died building the infrastructure to put on this World Cup. It's horrible, right? But it's impossible to continually bring that up, right? I mean, I'm a guy who, like, the coverage that I'm looking for, aside from just watching the games, I love to read about the tactics of these teams and the interesting things that they're doing. And so when I'm reading about the United States' switching formations in the game against England, right? I don't want the reporter to be like, at the beginning of the piece, oh, and by the way, this is all happening in a country that relied upon migrant labor to build these stadiums and and bribed FIFA's various confederations to even host this World Cup in the first place, right? It's just, you, you don't want that. Once you've decided to engage with it, it becomes impossible to sort of center those issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it is, you know, you think it's the media landscape too. Um, you know, we started this conversation by posing the question, like, what's it going to take for the United States, for soccer to break through in the United States um, and kind of this U.S. team to really kind of capture the popular culture and the popular interest? Well, you know, th- there's an interest in media organizations and not, rep- you know, who, who want to promote this sport to not promoting its sort of dark underside, right? So the, there's a disconnect in the, in, in, in the coverage. And, you know, I think too, like it's a lot to ask of a fan to turn the television off. I think we see that with the NFL. We see that with broad societal, societal issues. There's a lot of people, for example, that care about climate change, but it's really hard in the society that we've constructed to, you know, stop driving your car or stop getting on an airplane if you need to travel for work or, you know, whatever the case is, there's a lot of these big issues that are somewhat entrenched that it's really hard for an individual to, to have an impact on, you know, if I, if I boycott the world cup, is that really going to make an influence on, you know, whether North Korea gets the next one or not? Probably not. Now, granted, there's, there's probably a point at which a critical mass of people around the world have to boycott or turn it, turn it off or turn it off or turn it on fewer times. But, you know, we're nowhere near that. And how you get there, I think it needs to be kind of a, a combination of, of policy, of good journalism, and of countries kind of starting to, to, to stand up and say, you know, we're, we're not going to participate if it gets put in these sorts of places. A thing that soccer ha- or FIFA, I guess, has going for it as far as making these kinds of decisions is it is looking for market penetration. You know, what I mean by that is more viewers, more players, more investment in places where, you know, the, the kind of ethics of the government are a little bit more questionable, right? Like they, putting another World Cup in Europe doesn't do much for, for FIFA, but putting it in an emerging market does as far as the number of eyeballs it attracts the number of dollars that it attracts. So there is this kind of confluence of where FIFA, uh, the, the sport in general wants to penetrate the market and, and where these, you know, where these areas are that are a little less savory. Yeah, that's exactly right. And again, that's what Qatar is trying to take advantage of here. And the thing with FIFA again, is that, 
man, we could go for hours and hours on this, but FIFA is like yeah. genuinely one of the more corrupt organizations uh, in the world, right? I mean, there's been huge government investigations. I mean, the way that World Cups are awarded is every federation in FIFA has a vote, and generally it's one person from that federation, their representative in FIFA is voting for who gets to host the next World Cup. And so you can see how that would be really ripe for bribes and corruption. Just an interesting thing that's coming up, coming down the pipe. Saudi Arabia now is bidding to host one of the upcoming World Cups. And there's a rule that FIFA has that the same continental confederation can't host, you know, a certain number of World Cups in a certain time frame. So Saudi Arabia would be running afoul of that, obviously, if they hosted in close proximity to Qatar's World Cup. I believe they're trying to get around it by co-hosting with Turkey and Greece or, or a couple other European countries so that it's not just an Asian football confederation bid, but it's, you know, it's just a case study in how money can sort of warp the rules and particularly so in an organization like FIFA. I guess the last thing that I wanted to get to real quick is just, you know, why would a country like Qatar do something like this? What does the increased international prestige do for a country like that? You know, I think there's there's a lot of things it can do for a country like Qatar. It can kind of um, whitewash an image. Uh, you know, uh, and I say whitewash, like there's, there's not necessarily a, there's not much awareness of Qatar out there. And so, you know, they have this opportunity to maybe look at, look at, use the world cup as a way to paint on a blank canvas to sort of tell the world what it's all about. And so there's that there's impression making. There is also the attraction of investment from the international community where, you know, where are you going to go for luxury experience, whether it's your, you know, your international conference or, you know, your headquarters of your international corporation or, or things like that. So they can attract kind of an investment on the global scale um, and become like a, a destination location in, in the Middle East. Um, they are you know, not as, there's a lot of things about the Qatari government that are regressive, but they are relative to other countries in the region, a little bit more open to Western culture and Western values. Um, that's not to say it's a place that I would advocate doing business with for most American brands, but there are, there is opportunity there. And I think they're trying to sort of paint that picture on a broad scale. Um, and just capture mind share when it comes to, you know, if you're a billionaire and you got some fancy vacation that you want to go on, or you could go to, you know, you go to Monte Carlo, you could go to all these fancy places that, and maybe Doha is, is now on the list that people think of. And it becomes kind of associated with, you know, uh, the likes of Dubai, for example, as, as a place where the rich and famous congregate and, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of value in that. We see we see this in the United States. It's happening across the world. Wealth is getting concentrated in the hands of fewer people, and so you, if you can attract that 
that elite, I say elite, if you can attract that class of super wealthy folks to your place to do business or to recreate, I think there's a lot of upside there and the World Cup's an opportunity for Qatar to paint that picture, roll out that welcome mat in a way. That's exactly right. Qatar's not going to make any money from this World Cup, as you can imagine. Building nine bespoke stadiums in a country that size is rather expensive. Yeah. But the value for them is is down the road. It's in hearts and minds and free advertising, etc., etc. So many interesting angles to check in on in this World Cup. But, Justin, it really just comes back down to money, of course, and the things that money can do and the opportunities and the doors that money can open. And for the Qataris, it opened the door to a World Cup that's taking place as we speak here on the first day of December. We could talk, again, for probably hours about the effects of that. I, I've talked with people about this podcast about how badly that's going to affect the players coming back now to try to finish the European club season after having played a really intense tournament. Uh, But it is what it is, and that's what uh, money wanted, and that's what money got. So I appreciate Justin Engel coming on Soccer and Snow and Smoke here. Justin, thank you for coming on. Let everybody know what you've got going on and where they can find you. You'll be a regular contributor continuing on Nuanez now, but what else do you have going on? Well, yeah, so, you know, I appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to come on anytime. You know, the business of sports is an area that, that I find super interesting. I enjoy the biweekly segment with Coulter. Um, and I put out a weekly podcast and radio show called A New Angle. It, it releases every Thursday, and um, we are on uh, Montana Public Radio Thursday nights at 7.30 and Yellowstone Public Radio Tuesdays at 6.30. You can find episodes at a new angle podcast dot com. Um, we also teach classes at the University of Montana College of Business. I teach classes in general business, business strategy, brand strategy, et cetera. So um, always happy to, to talk to anybody interested in continuing their education. I'm a big fan of that. So if you're a prospective student or parent of a student, um, you can find me at the UM website. Always happy to chat. We'll have World Cup coverage continuing all month through the final here on Soccer and Snow and Smoke, as well as the Footy 15 on Nuanez Now. Soccer and Snow and Smoke is brought to you by Zootown Sports Cards, Canby Tap House and Coffee, and Blackfoot Communications. For Justin Angle, I'm Andrew Houghton. This has been Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Thank you for listening.